Next on the Agony Column podcast, over lunch one day, David Shipley and Will Schwalbe discovered that most of their complaints about work stemmed from email. This wonderful, wonderful communication technology that has sort of changed our lives also didn't really come with an instruction book. Their new book, Send, offers a roadmap through email minefields. Gender politics plus email is a very dangerous place to be. Don't push that send button next on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Once upon a time, we were trying to figure out when we needed to get a draft of this book to our editor, whom we'll call Marty. After all, that's his name. No problem, right? We were, reputedly, literate professionals. Will, my co-author, is the editor-in-chief of a publishing house, and I'm the editor of the New York Times op-ed page. And we were setting a basic timetable. It wasn't contentious. It wasn't emotional. It wasn't even all that complicated. Here's how it started. Marty sent us an email, subject line, one for the book, about an angry email he had written and regretted sending. Why was Marty sending us this note? I took the email at face value, assuming that Marty had simply wanted to pass along an anecdote for us to include. Will, however, suspected that this was Marty's gentle way of eliciting a status report. If I was right, the correct response would be simply to thank Marty for his contribution and leave it at that. If Will was right, the proper reply would be to email Marty a detailed memo, giving him a date by which to expect the manuscript. I answered promptly, following my instincts, and I copied Will. Subject, one for the book. Two, Marty, from Shipley, C.C. Schwalbe. Dear Marty, thanks for the anecdote. This will fit right in. All best, David. I, Will, started to formulate a progress report. But then, before I had finished it, Marty sent another email. In this one, Marty wrote how helpful it would be to have a portion of the manuscript to show his colleagues at an upcoming meeting. Okay, this time we both agreed Marty's note was a pretty unmistakable request for us to send him part of the book. The problem? We weren't quite ready. So we needed to figure out whether getting him part of the book was helpful or essential. David thought the former, I thought the latter. Regardless of who was right, the ball was now in our court. So what did we do? We began to panic and behave like lunatics. First, we did the worst possible thing. Nothing. Days went by. Perhaps the email would just go away. Then we wrote a convoluted response, one that reflected our eagerness to buy ourselves as much time as possible to finish the manuscript, but our response was also meant to reassure our editor. Here it is. Subject, one for the book, to Marty, from Shipley, Schwalbe. Dear Marty, thanks so much for yours. The writing is going well, but we're not quite there yet. We really want to get you something for your upcoming meeting, but we're not totally sure we can do it in time. We're wondering how much of the manuscript you need and the last date we can get it to you. Is there part of the manuscript that you're particularly interested in having? We have a complete first draft. Uh, Actually, that part was a lie. But some (laughs) parts are more polished than others. Perhaps we can talk next week so that we can let you know where we're at and discuss how best to proceed. All best, Will and David. And here's Marty's reply. I'm going on vacation next week. Let's talk when I return. Or... I'm going on vacation next week. Let's talk when I return. Ouch. Clearly Marty was fed up with us. Or not ouch, was he? Was he throwing up his hands and saying, whatever, I'm going on vacation? Or was he simply saying, this is a complicated topic. I can't talk about it right now because I'm leaving on vacation. I'll talk to you about it when I get back. Well, by the time we had sorted out our timetable, three weeks had passed. Lots of emails had been exchanged, and a question that should have taken one minute to answer had actually eaten up hours. We had come face-to-face with one of email's stealthiest characteristics, its ability to simulate forward motion. As Bob Geldof, the humanitarian rock musician, said, email is dangerous because it gives us a feeling of action, even when nothing is happening. 
So what is it about email? Why do we send so many electronic messages that we never should have written? Why do things spin out of control so quickly? Why don't people remember that email leaves an indelible electronic record? Why do we forget to compose our messages carefully so that people will know what we want without having to guess? We wrote this book to figure out why email has such a tendency to go awry and to learn for ourselves how to email not just adequately, but also well. Our holy grail? Email that is so effective that it cuts down on email. David Shipley is the deputy editorial page editor and op-edge page editor of The New York Times. Will Schwalbe is the senior vice president and editor-in-chief at Hyperion Books. Their new book is Send, the essential guide to email for office and home. Welcome to the program, gentlemen. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. David, tell us a little bit about how this book came together. I mean, you guys are a really interesting pair, and, and it's not apparent that you would join together to write a book about email. Well, we're, we're old friends. I mean, we've known each other for about 15 years. And, uh, you know, we both get a lot of emails for work. But, we, you know, Will and I have lunch on a fairly regular basis. And there was one lunch. It was uh, in the Oyster Bar Saloon at Grand Central Station. And we were just complaining and complaining and complaining about things that had gone awry at work. And about midway through the lunch, we came to the realization that most everything we were complaining about had something to do with email. It had to do with vague emails that we had received that took an enormous time to sort of discern what they meant. It had to do with email mistakes that we had made. And it sort of gradually began to dawn on us that this wonderful, wonderful communication technology that has sort of changed our lives also didn't really come with an instruction book. I mean, no one was around to tell us that this thing that you're going to do 100, 100, 200 times a day comes with a whole bunch of little minefields that you really don't know about. And so we sort of wanted to figure out, we thought, well, why don't we try to figure out what can go wrong in email, why it goes wrong, and how we can do it better. Will, tell us a little bit about how email has affected you recently, in the last week. Email in the last week? Well, I'm traveling right now, and email is first and foremost a godsend because otherwise my cell phone would be going off and interrupting everything I'm doing, and I'd be checking voicemail. So I do think it's the most brilliant information technology we have today. But I had a couple of classic email disasters that I was witness to this week. Uh, we have a kind of subcontractor at work, someone we pay to do a service, and she wrote something really hateful about us and meant to send it not to us and sent it to us. So email once again gave me the opportunity to find out what someone really thought. And along the same vein, I had a job applicant, really terrific applicant, who accidentally sent me a borderline pornographic description of his dirty weekend <laughs> that was meant to go to a select group of friends. And it, he's a very good writer, actually. He writes, he writes well. So it didn't uh, disqualify him. And I think I'm just not going to tell him. But that's sort of an example of a week full of the best email has to offer and some of its dangers. I, I just add one other thought. You know, I was away on vacation two weeks ago, and somehow I had managed to misset my out-of-office notification device. And when I came back, you know, I found a whole bunch of angry emails. And the thing that, that, you know, I sort of took two lessons from that. One that, you know, even though we worked on this project and sort of tried to figure out what was going wrong with email, we were going to continue to make mistakes. So I hope we make fewer and fewer of them. But also email has really speeded up everything. If people don't get a response from you in a pretty, you know, in a fairly timely manner, they're going to get nervous. And interestingly, too, people didn't really use the phone to follow up and say what happened to that email. They just kept sending emails. This goes to one of the most interesting uh, themes to come out of your book, email as a mirror. And this is something I've really experienced. If you send an email out and you don't get a reply, your responses tend to be to project whatever your worries are. That's what's happening over there on the end of the end of that email. Absolutely, it's a it's a it's a digital Rorschach. Or yeah, it is. I, I remember a case where someone at a magazine who I was very good pals with, and I sent him a request, and I thought maybe it was an inappropriate request, but I, I thought we were on pretty firm ground, and there was no response. And then about a week later, I sent him a cheery little email, just one of those like, hey, saw The Real World last night, because we both love that TV show, The Real World. Did you, did you catch it? And no answer. 
And then I got completely paranoid. Oh my goodness, I've destroyed a friendship. I never should have asked for that first thing. He hates me. And I wrote the most overwrought email. I wrote, I am so sorry. I realize I stepped over a bound and you must really hate me. And I hope you'll forgive me and blah, 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 blah. The phone rang two seconds later and he said, oh, oh, I feel just awful. I was on vacation and I didn't see any of your emails. So we do. It's it's we get paranoid and we project our fears, not just onto what people write, but the time it takes them to respond. And, and the mirroring thing becomes doubly vexed with people writing on handhelds because it's impossible to fully mirror a beautifully written, well-wrought email if you're responding via handheld and you're trying to type with your thumbs when you're you know, in between stoplights or you're walking down the street, uh, which is why the sort of disclaimer at the bottom of messages from a BlackBerry or a Trio that says you're writing from a handheld and that a proper response will follow is so useful. Otherwise, people will think that when you're mirroring, you know, they're writing beautiful Proustian paragraphs and you're responding like Raymond Carver. <laughs> yes. Uh, one of the things about mirroring is that it's a, a good way to gauge the person that you're speaking to. When you send an email to somebody and get a formal response, you want to keep up that formal tone, don't you? Well, especially if they do. Um, you know, it's always best to sort of work downward with uh, formality. But if somebody, yes, absolutely, if you're signing love and they keep writing back sincerely, I think you need to be aware to that. Yeah. And and things in organizations, too, they're very subtle politics of email style in organizations. So you have to be careful. If your boss, for example, sends you something, all lowercase, lots of spelling errors, you may want to send back a similar response because otherwise it might seem like a rebuke. Right, right. Probably without the typos. <laughs> Probably yes. without the typos. One of the things about corporate email is a real minefield these days. And one of the things that, that uh, I thought was very interesting was this idea of never sending an email to somebody's corporate address that you don't want forwarded to the entire company. Boy, that really put a chill down my spine. Yeah. It, it, someone phrased it differently with me once, which is never send an email to someone's corporate address that you wouldn't want posted on the lunchroom blackboard <laughs> uh, because it's the same thing. It's so easy in a company to hit the wrong key and get an entire list. But it's also everybody who works for any company in America has to be aware that someone can and may well be reading their emails. Though even since we wrote the book, you know, I would sort of think of revising that now because you look at the Karl Rove story. And when emails left sort of the closed White House or the RNC circle, then they became more of a subject of debate. So even if you're emailing, you know, Corporation to corporation, absolutely, you have to be careful of it being forwarded. But you have to be careful if you're writing on your personal email, too. The thing about this is that once it escapes, it is out there, and it's on the front page before you know it. It's interesting how hyper-aware we all are of servers. I never thought that I'd see the day when I'd see a senator standing on the floor of the Senate claiming that he know those emails were going to be copied on many servers. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yes. the server farm issue. It's, it's Tech literacy hits Congress. Yes. One of the things that's, that's very interesting about email is the history. It, and this goes to what you started out with. There's no instruction book because it's really recent. Lettering, written correspondence is centuries old and there's centuries mm -hmm. of etiquette behind it. Uh, David, tell us a little bit about the history of email. Well, the history, you know, email sort of, you know, neither Will nor I are great technological experts. I mean, this is this is a book written very much from an editor's uh, perspective and how we communicate with each other online. That said, it is wildly new. You know, it is in our, you know, email grew up in our lifetime. Uh, add to that the fact that there is really no sort of superego built in. You know, when you wrote a letter, not only was there this long history of etiquette attached to it, there were plenty of opportunities to stop yourself. You know, you'd write the thing, and then you'd have to fold it and put it in an envelope and address it and put a stamp on it and go to the mailbox. And there were so many opportunities for the better angels of your nature to kick in. Whereas with email, you know, you have that giant blinking send key. And it, it is like a tractor beam, you know, slowly but surely 
pulling your hand toward the keyboard so that you can send this thing before it's before it's yeah. fully cooked. It's also uh, interesting. We spoke to Naomi Barron, who's a professor of linguistics, who's written a lot about this topic. And she pointed out to us that people had exactly the same problems integrating first the telegraph and then the telephone into mm-hmm. their lives. And all the same conversations we're having when is it appropriate to greet or to leave off a greeting? What's a proper closing? Can you do a thank you or an apology or condolence? About 10 years into telephone and telegraph, they were having exactly the same conversations. One thing that, that is, is fascinating is that email, when you're writing it, when you're sending it, when you're receiving it, it seems ephemeral. It only lasts as long as you pre- takes to press the send button. You can turn off the application. Everything goes away, but that's exactly the opposite of what it is, isn't it? Well, I, th- I think that's what happened at the Justice Department. I mean, it happened so fast and it happened so often that you lull yourself into thinking that it is ephemeral as the action itself. And the fact is, it isn't. You know, it feels often when I'm writing an email, I have a little conversation going on in my head, and I almost convince myself that I'm chatting with somebody. And that's one of the reasons, too, people make so much mistake on tone, because they hear the friendly voice in their head as they're typing it, but forget that the person receiving it just receives very cold words on a screen. Will, can you tell us a little bit about the state of being called disinhibition? That was such an interesting thing that we encountered. We spoke to Daniel Goleman, who's science writer, author of Social Intelligence, and he told us about he coined it disinhibition, and uh, we jokingly called it cluelessness, uh, (laughs) is what happens when you're typing and you think you're in conversation with somebody, but of course you're not. And he pointed out to us when you're actually in conversation, your unconscious brain is monitoring for all sorts of reactions. You can tell, is the person smiling? Are they starting to get angry? And you adjust your tone and your content appropriately. But when you're typing on email, the person isn't in front of you. You can't see any reaction. So if you start to get it wrong, you'll continue to get it wronger and wronger. And that's this state of disinhibition that also encourages you to uh, get angrier, more duplicitous, uh, more sarcastic. And these can lead you to say things that, of course, that you really regret. One of the things about email that I actually really like, I think is going to do us a lot of good, is now everybody's a writer. And, mm. and we all have to learn how to write again. Whereas with the when our primary con, uh, mode of uh, communication was the phone, there's not so much thinking about putting the language. And I think that's actually a good thing to put the writing up front again. Look, this is this is a wonderfully democratic technology. I mean, it has leveled so much. I mean, you can reach people you could never reach before, and people are asked to people who are in positions where they never had to write are now are now asked to write, and kids are writing more. I mean, I think it's a great boon for for literacy. I mean, in a way, it's sort of like uh, the Harry Potter of technology. Could you guys talk about some of the uh, the eight email deadly sins? Tell us what they are, because they're very helpful to us. Good, good. We really had fun coming up with them, because they're really... If you can eliminate the deadly sins, then it improves your life enormously. And, and the first and the one that people always forget is the vague email, that if you send an email to someone and you're not clear about what you want, you may cause hours of consternation, but you also will undoubtedly cause dozens of unnecessary emails. So where's Eddie becomes Eddie who? Uh, Eddie Jones. Where does he work? He works at such and such a place. Why do you want to know? Because I'm trying to reach him. Where can he call you? You you know, you see those email chains. If you had just been specific the first time, the whole thing would have been done. So people complain they get too many emails, but part of the problem is they send vague ones. Yeah, the subject line is a huge part of that, too. I mean, if you're writing someone for the first time and the subject line isn't precise, you know, it's more likely than not to get lost. Um, If you have an ongoing correspondence with someone and you aren't refreshing the subject line, something that I sadly am am guilty of. You know, you really force the person with whom you're corresponding to sort of hunt and peck and search for the precise point in the thread where you are in your conversation. Yeah. And that takes up a lot of time. And the second one we had was the email that insults you. Uh, and this has to do with this disinhibition effect we were talking about. People are very insulting on email. And 
that's something that you really want to think carefully about. It has a lot to do with sort of the affectless of email, that it's so easy to misread things. I mean, there's another study that we talk about in the book that was brought to our attention by Dan Gilbert, the author of Stumbling on Happiness, about, and it seemed particularly applicable to us in terms of how flame wars start. It was a study at the University College London about, and you take two people, and they would be asked to exert equal amounts of pressure on the other person's hand. And so I would squeeze your hand, and then you would squeeze my hand, and you'd be trying to squeeze back with equal force. Uh, it turns out, though, that in this study, people, when, you sque- when the second person squoze or squeezed back, he squeezed back with 40% more force. And so all of a sudden I'm thinking, hey, what's going on here? You know, why is, uh, you know, why is this happened to me? I'm going to squeeze back, too. And before long, you have this horrible flame war erupting where you're squeezing and squeezing and squeezing, and all of a sudden uh, you're at war with each other. That happens yeah. on email. And uh, the next one we had was the email that puts you in jail, which Frank Quattrone uh, certainly can talk about. I mean, if you are in a company and you send out a, gee, folks, please delete all those files email, and things go south later, it's not going to look too good for you. Yeah, the email that's cowardly, I mean, that's that simple. You think you're having, uh, you, it's very easy to hide behind your computer or to do what Radio Shack did and fire 400 people via email. Bad idea. Bad idea. And then I think one that has really struck a chord, especially with businesses who have contacted us to come talk to people, is the email that won't go away. The Ray, 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 or re, 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 depending on how you say it, where people just continue a conversation endlessly when, if it's not getting solved on email, pick up the phone and get the thing done. Yeah. The, the other thing that I would add to that, too, is that it's, it's an enormous gift to send someone an email and say no need to reply on it. Yes, and I've had many times when I'm trying to actually arrange uh, interviews, and after about the fourth email back and forth, two thirty or three thirty, two forty-five or three forty-five. After a while, I just yeah. go, "Okay, I'm calling. I'm calling this publicist up. We're going to nail it down, and that's going to be that." Absolutely, and I'm sure you have too. When people just extend a conversation long past its expiration date. So you say, oh, I love the interview. And they say, thank you so much. I enjoy talking to you. And you say, well, I enjoy talking to you. And they say, no, 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 really, I was the one who had more fun. And after a while, you just have to stop. Yeah, it's very embarrassing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, then we, we also cite as one of our deadly sins the sarcastic email. Sarcasm is, is a, usually a poor choice in person and almost always a poor choice on email. It's a deadly weapon. It is a deadly weapon. It is. And an emoticon, which we, you know, surprisingly, we, we over the course of the year, we sort of came out in favor of just because we thought that it was a useful way to uh, introduce tone into a basically toneless medium will never save you from a sarcastic comment. No, no. And in fact, what will do is make people even more annoyed because they'll be annoyed not only by the sarcasm, but by the presence of the emoticon. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, we found that's very dangerous. Number seven is uh, the email that's too casual. Uh, This this is a personal pet peeve of mine. You know, somebody who doesn't know me writes me a note, dear Dave, hiya Dave, what's going on, Dave? Yeah, I'd really prefer Mr. Shipley, and I'd prefer to to address someone I've just met for the first time as a Mr. and Mrs. You can always deformalize as you go on, but it's really best to start with the most formal tone. Same with sincerely. Uh, I thought was really interesting was that you came out in favor of using dear, and that's what I tend to do because I have to write a lot of people cold. And, and I, I, here's a word that's you know practically ancient. You right. you can it, it's. Time should be passed, but it still works really well, doesn't it? There's something about it. There's something gentle about it, and it puts the recipient in a good frame of mind. It's respectful. And one of the, the things about email is if you're trying to get something, why not give yourself all the tools you can to get what you want? Why not put your recipient in a good frame of mind? Yeah, it's, re- it's really interesting. You, we, we were giving a talk at South by Southwest Interactive, the, the great tech festival in Austin, and we sort of did an informal survey of what bothered people. And overly informal salutation really bothered people. So th- these are people who have been around email you know, from the get-go and are deeply, wildly steeped in the tech world. And yet their concerns were often based on just simple manners, you know, proper salutation, proper sign-off, making sure there are no typos, making sure the writing is clear. Yeah. 
And the final of our uh, of our deadly sins is the inappropriate email. And you would think in this day and age, you would think you would think <laughs> that people knew not to make sexual comments, overtures, racist jokes. Um, but it's appalling. People continue to do this and quite rightly continue to get in trouble for it. And if you have colleagues who are creating a hostile work environment by sending this kind of stuff, they are going to bring great trouble down on their head and on the company. And, you know, we we don't have too much sympathy for that. This stuff, it doesn't belong in person, but it sure as heck doesn't belong on email. Yeah, I mean, related to that are all these people who have carried on uh, romantic relationships via email. I mean, you have the, the Walmart case right now. Uh, you have uh, the CEO of Starwood who reportedly emails with a subordinate, had something to do with him walking away from this huge compensation package. So both the inappropriate emails and the inappropriate romances carried on via email, um, definitely something to you stay know, away from. One survey of Enron's email trove found that fully 4% of the emails. So that's one out of every 25 had offensive racial or sexual content. That's just amazing. One thing you point out that I I thought was really interesting was this idea of inadvertently sharing information, saying somebody asks you something and you say, well, I can't talk to this guy because he's over there. And all of a sudden you've revealed to somebody that this person you're president is over there, and they may be fishing for that precise bit of information. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that, you know, if you work in an organization and you're dealing with privileged and confidential information, the second you send it outside the loop, it's no longer privileged. So whatever legal protection you had all of a sudden evaporates. Yeah. And people... They just they get into these sharing sort of uh, MySpacey kind of moments yeah. when they're on email. So it's like where your boss is, as you said. The fact that your boss is in Tulsa may mean talks with Warren Buffett. But it's also a sentence coming out of a meeting like, hey, we just had the great meeting and we're pricing our new thing at $22. If there's later a price-fixing suit, that one email could be the smoking gun. Yep. And I've actually been in instances where where I had to go back and retrieve emails that had been on servers that had died or dying when I arrived, like ancient 15-year-old servers, and pull them off for legal reasons to uh, prevent somebody from stealing a patent. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. so the, the the vagaries of corporate email, I think, are really interesting. And I think the, the main thing that we always want to remember, at, and you make this quite clear and apparent with corporate email, is the corporation owns every single keystroke that your little fingers type on that computer. They do yeah. indeed. And it's amazing that corporations, too, because they spend decades building up goodwill and then attempt walks in the door, gets an email account with that company's name, and a couple of emails later can destroy decades' worth of great reputation. Yeah, you would think there would be a little more email training built in. Uh, That's one of the reasons I think this book should be, like, stapled to the desk of every human resources (laughs) officer in the country because it'd save uh, quite a few careers. That was our hope. I mean, we feel I feel really sorry, too, for people who don't realize the damage they can cause. I don't feel so sorry for the people at tops of organizations, but there's a lot of people who aren't at the top of organization that that just don't know these things and get themselves into a heck of a lot of trouble. Yeah. One of the uh, things that I found really fascinating is this idea of attachments. Everybody in the universe, unfortunately, uses Microsoft Word. And you look at a document, it's just got some words on a piece of paper, virtual piece of paper, and you think that's all there is. But that's not all there is, is it? Oh, no. You can get uh, executable files that come as sort of in Trojan horse attachments, and they look like there's something simple, and they invade your computer. Uh, my sort of pet peeve with attachments is much more garden variety, which is people send me huge things, and it fills up all my server space. And if I'm on my handheld and out of the office, I may be locked from sending any more emails, and it drives me crazy. I, I really believe if you're sending something more than one megabyte, send an email first and ask for permission. Absolutely. It's, uh, the, the tyranny of personal spam has, has gone out of control. We, we sort of joked uh, in the book that it's like 
coming over to someone's house with a moving van and filling up all their closets <laughs> with your stuff. And then wanting to show your vacation movies. <laughs> <laughs> or, or actually, there's a scene in the T.C. Boyle book where he has like a, a, an eight-person jacuzzi delivered to somebody's house. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. One of the things about this book that makes it really good is there's a lot of humor in the book. And I'd like you guys both, David uh, Shipley, tell me a little bit about some of the way you wrote some of the humor into the book. There's a great line in there where you talk about that one of the reasons email was developed was because the Pentagon didn't need to send quick information quickly, like at vis-a-vis, say, missile launches. Well, you know, our great inspiration was Strunk and White, um, which is a tremendously funny book. I mean, wow. it is. It is not. You know, it, it. You you shudder to even put yourself in the. And I'm not drawing to comparison, but in terms of an inspiration, that book was really was it for us because it is clear, it's not dogmatic, and it's absolutely hilarious. And then I'd add to that. I don't know if you've seen it recently. Myra Kalman, the illustrator, came out with a new edition of Strunk and White, oh, where I she saw has that. these wonderfully whimsical illustrations that go along with it. And when I opened that book, it was just a tremendous inspiration for for Will and me in terms of doing this because it just it highlighted the fun. It highlighted that you could have a great time with this and that you could you could talk about these things in a way that would make you actually, you know, want to read them. I mean, we we wanted to write this cuz we were having so much fun writing it. And, you know, lines like the missile joke or whatever, you know, ideally some of this will will you know, be appealing to a lot of people. But but seeing Strunk and White and seeing Myra's rendition of Strunk and White was something that just sort of opened a door in uh, in our minds and reinforced that you could have fun with something like this. Well, one of the things about this book that I thought, and I'm wondering if this is true, this book is almost formatted like a really well-written email. There's, the paragraphs are short. It's easy to read. There's lots of white space. You have all the, the facts and nice little blue boxes like that's forwarded from somebody else's email account. That's I'm so pleased to hear you say that uh, because that really was our intent. And one of the things about the best emails that I've received is I was able immediately to figure out what the heck the person was talking about. Mm. And we wanted to really break it into small chunks so that... It would be a fun book to read, or we hoped it would be a fun book to read, but also if you really wanted an answer to something, you could get that answer right away. And one of our email tips is short paragraphs because it just we're all very busy. And so we really tried to follow our own advice in the book. I, I would just want to, as, as editors, I feel sort of karmically bound to say that a lot of the help came from our editor. It did indeed, Marty. We, 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 we had written our, for, you know, you write a number of drafts of a book. And, you know, there are bits and pieces, but it was, it, Marty really pushed us to break it up and to turn it into more of an email, uh, to sort of mirror the kind of style that we hope that people will have in their emails. And, uh, you know, you can just never say enough about good editing. It, it, it really makes all the difference. We did actually write this 60,000-word book three times. <laughs> uh, we wrote 180,000 words to, to find, uh, thanks to our editor's help, the 60,000 we wanted. Side by side. One thing that, that I found fascinating was your comparisons of fax versus email versus phone and versus uh, Internet messaging. And could you talk about how each of those uh, play out? Let's start with fax. With fax? Well, it's funny because fax is supposed to be a dinosaur. I always thought so. I never liked them, frankly. <laughs> um, well, my big problem with facts always is people assume they're private, but they're almost always in the kind of hallway. And neither David nor I are able to resist reading everybody's faxes when we are <laughs> <laughs> going through them. I mean, Who can't? Who can right resist? There. A... Who can resist? Uh, but I don't have a scanner next to my desk at work. I'd have to go to the art department, and that's not atypical. So by the time I scan something in, and uh, then sent it as an attachment. It's just easier to fax. So I think as long as we have fax machines, people will use them. And also, there's the issue of sometimes I was worked in an engineering department, and I could send somebody a file till the these files till the cows come home. But unless they had our peculiar engineering uh, design application on the other end, they couldn't do boo with it. So. That can be very true. Also, a fax is much less easy to forward indiscriminately. Yep. 
So it is inherently safer. And Will, tell me if I'm wrong on this. A fax is also easier to execute as a legal document. Yeah, there, there. For lawyers who advised us on this, told us that there are many situations where a fax signature can be considered a true signature, and there are select email situations where that's true, depending on the industry. Let's talk about the phone, because I think that one of the things that you make very clear in this book is that phone and email should really go hand in hand, and you need to know when to go back and forth between them. Because right now, sitting here, I can see your guys' faces, I can hear your voices, I can tell what's going on, which is something that were we in a big email chain, we wouldn't know boo about that, would we? I mean, I think anybody who's listening on radio knows why you would want to pick up the phone. There are just certain things that you can untangle or relate when you are talking over a line that you can't do on email. Yeah, emotion. If it gets emotional, you got to take it right off email, get on the phone, do it in person. We also had a fun fact in the book, which is if 10 people are trying to decide among four restaurants and you accept that each one of their opinion could influence the others, you can have a million emails before you decide what restaurant you're going <laughs> to. <laughs> and uh, that's a good time for the phone. Uh, I've been in one of those conversations, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in one. <laughs> and then IMing is something I love. I'm a, a constant IMer at work. Uh, and my favorite thing for instant messaging is to use it in concert with other technologies. So I find that if I'm on a conference call with someone outside the company, the ability to instant message my colleagues in my company, is she lying? I think she's lying. Do you think she's lying? You know, to have a meta conversation going on is fantastic. And I am as uniquely suited for that in a business environment. I mean, that's mm-hmm. not going to work on email. And certainly as, as a social tool. I mean, I am is, you know, with the explosion of it, you see that it works, you know, really, really well if you're hooked up with a bunch of friends and you're going back and forth all the time. Um, you know, you may see in the future email reserved more for business and I am or I am like technologies reserved more for social interaction. Of course, you do want to remember that I am, even though it's ephemeral, is every bit as permanent as email. Maybe not as easily retrievable, but it's there. Tell oh, Mark yes. Foley. Mark Foley found that out <laughs> with his inappropriate uh, IMs to a young page. Yeah, you know, there's always somebody out there who's willing to make the mistakes for us, aren't, aren't oh, we glad? Thank goodness. Thank <laughs> but goodness. We, you know, the thing is, with emails, we seem to be making the same mistakes over and over again. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that the CEO of Boeing had to step down because of inappropriate emails. And yet, here we are again. When we get to the part of the title of the book, Sending Emails, one of the things that you that you mentioned, I think there's a really interesting and good idea, is to make sure you're sending it to the right person and not just the right email address, that you're not asking the CEO where what parking space you should use when you show up for your interview. Oh, it's it's that's one of the ways that we waste each other's time and aggravate each other the most on email is we ask for things we don't really need, and we ask the wrong person for those things. One of the things that drives me crazy, but I'm also guilty of it, is the human Rolodex syndrome, (laughs) where someone is constantly pinging you with, do you have Ed's number, do you have Phil's number, do you have Mary's number? And people do this to the CEO. You'll get an entry-level person sending the CEO an email saying, you know, do you have Mary's number, just because they can. So part of it is to send it to the right person, because it's really insulting if you don't. It makes it sound like you don't know what they do. And then part of it is, is it really appropriate for you to be asking that person for that thing? And also, there's a lot of etiquette in those three little lines at the top of the email, the to line, the CC line, and the BCC line. Tell us when to use put addresses in each space. Well, BCC, I would just generally stay away from. I think Will and I both agree that BCC is by nature a devious thing. Well, with the big exception that David and I came upon, of course, which is if you're sending out a party invite to 500 people, for goodness sake, put their addresses in the BCC line so you don't share everybody's address with everybody else. Right. Absolutely. But uh, bar- barring that, it's really something that's that's great to stay away from. Um, the, take a distinction between two and CC. Say you have a bunch of people who have worked on a project, and seven of them have worked night and day, and four of them, you know, put in a fair amount of work but didn't do anything to compare with the others. Now, you put them all in the two line with the thank you note, and the people who didn't work quite as hard are going to feel a little, well, 
you know, they're either actually the people who worked so hard are going to feel sort of dissed a little bit because, you know, the people who didn't work quite so hard are in the same thing. Um, so it's best, you know, to understand that there's a real distinction between those two lines. Yeah, absolutely. That that happened to me. I worked night and day on a project uh, and someone else worked very little on it. And the person whose benefit the project was for sent us both an email. Thanks for all your hard work. I really appreciate it. And I thought to myself, I know you really don't because you have no idea who did what. And then there's the another the deadly button of reply all. Uh, reply. I mean, reply all disasters. The, the thing is that, you know, they're the most interesting stories to tell, you know, because they tend to be, you know, the most exciting and dramatic and horrible things happen. But they also happen to everyone. I mean, they really are sort of like, you know, walking into the yard, stepping on a rake, and it hits you. It hits you in the head. All, all, all you can do about them is really be aware of it. But yes, they're, they're, they're wild stories. But the, the thing is, they're sort of, they're less solvable than some of these other things with email that we can really do something about. I mean, ideally, you don't want to have a reply-all disaster but it will probably happen. What you can correct, though, is, you know, a little nagging subject line problem or a tendency to write overly vague emails. Those are the things that you can actually do something about. And it's kind of, it's just nice to know in in this world with so many intractable, intractable problems, there's actually something that you can do better. And this is one of those things. Well, you, one thing you mentioned about reply all, and this is something I'd never thought of before, but was really, I thought, uh, right on, was that when you do a reply all and you know what you're doing, it's best to know all the people you're replying to, even though you might want to share this information or with these other people who are somewhat vaguely. If you don't know them, it's best not to send them that email, isn't it? Absolutely. And that happens a lot company to company that someone you're dealing with at another company or school or whatever will send you an email and they'll CC a lot of people and you don't know those people. Right. You don't know are they the company's attorneys? Are they someone in a different department? Are they? And if you hit reply all, you can cause huge problems. So sometimes you just need to shoot an email back to the person who sent it to you and say, hey, I'd love to answer your request, but can you tell me who all those CCs are? <laughs> and I really consider, as does David, it good email manners if you add CCs to explain to the people you're sending your email to who they are. So it's like, hey, I've added someone from our sales and marketing department. And, of course, there's always the deadly angry email, and you have some great advice for that. Well, so if, first of all, if you're writing the angry email, um, well, there are two species of angry emails. If you find yourself writing an angry email, for God's sake, try to do it in a Word document first, or make sure when you're writing it you don't have anything in that two field. So that, you know, you want to build in as many opportunities as you can to reconsider That said, you know, there are times when you need to write an angry email. And if you need to write an angry email, you know, we don't want to be doctrinaire about it. You know, there's anger in every sort of interaction. So from time to time, you know, you have to do it. But just know that you're doing it and know what the consequences are and minimize the mistakes and give yourself plenty of opportunities for your superego to kick in. And you mentioned never say it unless you'd say it within punching distance, which yes. I think is a good, a good, uh, a good filtering mechanism. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that gets back to our, the deadly sin we called the cowardly email. Because really, if you wouldn't say it in punching distance, you're just being a coward, and it probably doesn't belong on email. Yep. There's a fascinating uh, sidebar in this book about uh, how women versus men uh, feel about email. And this is one of those things that should be like handed on a plastic placard to every guy who ever has to use an email account. Yeah, that was um, Deborah Tannen, who uh, is has a linguistics professor who writes a lot about these issues, uh, spoke particularly to us about teasing on email, that men are more likely, and all, all of Deborah Tannen's work has to do with sort of what men and women are more likely to do. She recognizes that lots of individuals fall outside the uh, scales of her work, but that men are more likely to see teasing as teasing, and women are more likely to feel actually attacked by teasing language in emails. And then what really get I thought was very interesting was that women, flames, no, just don't 
even go there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, it's really gender politics plus email is a very dangerous place to be. <laughs> and also, and this I found really interesting, men, when you send an email, if I send an email to you, I'm going to get to the point right away and I'm going to tell you what I want. And if I'm going to send one to my wife, maybe I want to kind of uh, soften it up and butter up a little bit. Just to, don't want to get straight to the point. We want to get create a little bit of a relationship yeah. beforehand. Well, she also told us, which was very interesting, that in in various types of communication culturally, uh, and all of her work is about cultural differences, not biological differences, culturally, women expect more social interaction. They expect a, an introduction before a command is barked on average. And that's true on email, too. She also has fascinating work about troubles talk. And she hasn't specifically applied this to email, but we think it applies, which is women culturally like to share troubles more than men do without the expectation that you are going to solve their problems for them. Right. So if a woman sends you sends a man an email complaining about something, it may just be to vent, to get it off her chest, and you shouldn't automatically assume that she's looking for you to swoop in and solve the problem. Right. Yeah. Sympathy, not... Empathy, not advice. Yes. Or to tell her that it's not a problem. Yeah. And jokes? Jokes are dangerous. They're dangerous whether man to woman, woman to man, man to man. Jokes are dangerous. Yes. And let's go to, uh, you provide in your book some of great, there are many great services you provide in this book, which I think would be stapled to the desks of many uh, corporate desks in America, one of the things you do is you provide something that's very useful, a canon of how to apologize for a late email so that we now know when we apologize, if we can just use one of the many helpful phrases that we found in your book, it's all good. You don't (laughs) don't have to think about it anymore. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about apologizing through email. Well, uh, we find that, first of all, you do need to apologize, and it's a nice way to start the conversation. So if you say, you know, I'm terribly sorry, really sincere, but but a dramatic apology, usually people will forgive you. And to realize, too, that there are limits to an email apology, that you could try an interstitial email apology, but that shouldn't be a substitute for walking down the hall or picking up the phone or writing a letter. Yeah, if you've really been ignoring someone, if you're just apologizing for a late email, uh, there are phrases that, that will help you out. But if you're apologizing for something hideous you did off email, you'll probably want to start the apology on email, but you should mention a proper note, visit, groveling to come. And the apologies we offer are really just a template for, you know, everybody should sort of make the apology their own. But uh, we offer a few suggestions. Uh, one thing that that I think is is absolutely true is to never send an email apologizing for the my previous email. Oh, absolutely! I mean, it's an invitation to read it. <laughs> yeah. <You> know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Those recall messages are just whenever I see someone try to recall a message if they're unsuccessful, and they're unsuccessful ninety nine percent of the time uh, because it really is only a very set of small set of circumstances that allow you to pull an email back. Um, that always makes me read right away whatever they're recalling. Yeah, Will was telling me the other day about a book marketing campaign where they sent out an email about the book and then quickly sent another email saying, don't read this. And responses to the book went through the roof. Email has a lot of flags and bells and whistles that supposedly can help us. But I, I know from my own personal feelings that I don't like any of those flags. Yeah. And you guys don't seem to either. The, the interfaces are a huge problem. I mean, email makes it very hard to still sort your inbox, you know, to flag things, to check what you've read. So far, you know, the, you know our, our interactions are still fairly primitive on email, and I think the technology seems fairly yeah. primitive, too. Oh, those, really? Those little, uh, my personal pet peeve are the little urgent red exclamation points. Oh. Um, I don't want other people telling me what's urgent. It's urgent for them. It's not urgent for me. And uh, we sort of think it's like the boy who cried wolf. There's some people, every single email, they attach one of those. And that means I, I basically ignore everything they send me. Yeah, it's, it's the inverse of the please don't read this email. And then there's another kind of email that asks you to acknowledge it immediately before you can do anything oh. else with your Oh, Absolutely infuriating. It freezes your screen. Uh, same, with those th- same with those Plaxo address book updates. That, uh, you know, it's basically like calling someone and asking them to come over and put your address in their address book. 
And, you know, any, you know, there are enough interruptions um, and we all have a hard enough time sort of controlling our email and acknowledging that it is an interruption and controlling the interruption. When you have other people interrupting you in these different ways, you know, freezing your screen with requests, it's a little bit too much. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of the different salutations. This is a really interesting distinction that you made uh, that sometimes when you say you can either say Dear Mr. Harvey or you can say Dear John Harvey, and that's going to tell people slightly different, something they might not want to hear. I've always thought, and, and David agreed, that the Dear Will Schwalbe, Dear John Harvey, Dear David Shipley looks like the sort of weird offspring of a mail merge document <laughs> and an address book. Uh, because I don't walk down the street and say, Hello, David Shipley, uh, nor does he say, Hello, Will Schwalbe. So really... It's a weird locution that is unnatural. The only time it's reasonable to use is if you're having a gender problem. Absolutely. So if uh, Pat Riley, for example, if you didn't happen to know that Pat was a man, you might want to put Dear Pat Riley and not take a chance on Mr. or Ms. Yeah, Ms. Riley would be a horrible mistake. That would be a mistake. But, you know, in the age of Google, you can also uh, look somebody up and try to figure it out. There's some... uh, Another piece of priceless advice is to consider email, if before you send an email, consider it as another existing in another medium because uh, the example you give is sending somebody 30 emails a day. Would you call them 30 times in a day? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's very scary what you can do to, with email. It's very scary. And, and bosses forget this a lot. And they muse on email. So they'll send out an email saying, I wonder what our sales are like in Cleveland, question mark. And they don't really want to know. They're just musing. And what they may not realize is a whole department might be paralyzed for a week trying to figure out the answer to that question. (laughs) So uh, that's very dangerous, too. You really have to think, do I really need to know this? I mean, what's that 20-page report doing on my desk about Cleveland? (laughs) I didn't ask them for that. You guys have set up a a website for for this book. Tell us a little bit about that website. We have indeed. We've been having so much fun with that. It's called www.thinkbeforeyousend.com. And we've asked America, the world in fact, to share bad emails, both stories about bad emails and the actual emails themselves, and to put them in different categories. It's really easy to do. You just go there and you post your story. It's all anonymous. And then once we get enough stories, we're going to ask America to vote on what the worst email is. And it's partially for fun because it's so funny to read these stories and you have a little schadenfreude and a little relief. But it's also so we can come up with a kind of taxonomy of Mm -hmm. bad email and really decide as a country what are the things we hate the most and have to stop doing. Well, what have you got so far? We got a really fascinating one just a couple of days ago, which is your classic reply all disaster from a soldier in Iraq who said that one of his uh, compatriots, one of his uh, fellow soldiers, sent the classic, my superior officer is an SOB email uh, to the superior officer and got in serious disciplinary problems. So uh, that's sort of uh, the armed forces equivalent of bad emailing. And most of the stories do have to do with reply all and forwarding disasters where someone was venting on email about someone else and that email found its way to them. So one of the messages that's emerging is duplicity on email is very dangerous. Yep. And we haven't even talked about forwarding yet, which is, uh, again, very, very dangerous. Tell us a little bit about what you have to think about before you forward, particularly in a corporate and legal sense. Well, first of all, you should ask before you forward. Second thing you should realize is that your emails can be messed around with. You know, if you send someone an email and it may not be exactly what was originally written in the in in the in the early days because you can cut things, you can move things around, and so what you finally get, what's been forwarded to you may not be the actual document that you're meant to think is the actual document. We've been talking with David Shipley and Will Schwalbe. Their new book is Send, the Essential Guide to Email for Office in the Home. Buy one, staple it to your desk today. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. (laughs) Thanks so so much much for having having us. us. That was great. (laughs) You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, 
and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.